thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, growing up as a kid, when I was misbehaving, my dad would ask a question, and you know, maybe some of you as parents have asked this question as well to your kids. He would say, do you want a spanking? Now, I never answered yes. Yes, Dad, I would love a spanking. I'd love for you to beat my butt. I'd love for that pain. You know, please spank me. You know, that was never the response that I ever gave. Actually, I'm pretty confident there's never been a time in my life where I wanted discipline. I think it's safe to say that discipline is something that none of us like to receive. I haven't met anyone and you're like, you know, what are the things you like? Well, I like Bluebell and, you know, I like cars or I like steak and I love discipline. I mean, discipline is just not something that, that people, you know, enjoy receiving. Now, even though we don't like to receive discipline, it's important for us to receive discipline, especially when we're kids learning how to behave. I'm sure all of you have been in a situation where you're out in the town, maybe you're, you know, uh, at a restaurant or you're at a mall or you're just somewhere in public and you just see a kid who is just totally misbehaving and you think to yourself, that kid needs some discipline because we associate discipline with helping change behavior. And that's not just something that, that we think ourselves. This is also a very biblical truth and concept. Proverbs 22, verse 12 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. You know, the reality is kids are foolish little sinners and they need discipline to correct that behavior, to help them learn how to properly behave. But you know what? When we grow up, we don't stop sinning. It's like, oh, all of a sudden we're grown up and now we know everything to do that's right. No, we we grow up and we're still sinful. And sometimes we might know what's right, but we still don't do what's right. And so we still need that discipline, that correction to help us recognize not only should we know the right thing, but we need to do the right thing because when we don't do the right thing, there are consequences to that. Now, as believers who are adults, one of the main disciplinarians in our life is God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. But notice who God disciplines. The ones He loves. Just like a loving Father, He is our Heavenly Father. He disciplines us as His children. Why? Because He loves us. He doesn't look at our sin and say, you know what, well, just keep going. I'm just going to ignore that. I'm not going to deal with that. He loves us too much just to allow us to continue in our sinful behavior because he recognizes, just like a parent recognizes with their child, when you continue in that sinful behavior, it hurts you. It's not good for you. And so God disciplines us so that we will change our sinful behavior. Now, God's not the only one who is there to discipline us. He also challenges us to correct or discipline other believers. Now, the reason I am sharing all this about discipline is because as we come now to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a whole new issue. We've been dealing with divisions and all these different issues that were causing divisions in the first four chapters of this book. And now Paul comes to chapter 5 where he's ultimately dealing with a lack of of church discipline among sinners there in Corinth. You see, the problem that they were dealing with in Corinth was there was some serious, ongoing, unrepentant sin that the church wasn't dealing with. They weren't addressing. They were just ignoring. And because of this lack of discipline, that person in sin and the rest of the fellowship as well were suffering because of this. Now, I started by making the statement that none of us like to receive discipline, but it's important that we receive it. But I think the other statement I want to make, and I can't put everyone out there because I've known people who do like this, but most of us don't like to give discipline. 
If you enjoy giving discipline and that's something that really pleases you, then you know maybe you want to check your heart in that reality. But most of us would not prefer to do that because it can be very uncomfortable to have to come to someone and share with them, you know what, you have a sin in your life that needs to be addressed, that needs to be changed. You know, oftentimes that leads to confrontation. Oftentimes it just leads to unpleasantness. And so we don't like it. You know, that we're not, oh, I'm so excited today to go address this person's sin. And because of that reality, because it's unpleasant, because we don't like it, oftentimes we just take the easy road. You know what? I'll just ignore it. I'll just hope it goes away. I'll just hope they change without me ever saying anything and just leave it alone. But you know what? As we're going to see here in chapter 5, ignoring or avoiding sin of other believers is not only bad for the person in sin, it's also bad for the people in the fellowship that are there with him. Church discipline is hard and often difficult, but it's important to do to help each other grow. So let's see what we can learn here from chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians of what Paul shares here about church discipline. He's going to start with the sin, the sin that's not being dealt with, and it's quite a severe and quite frankly a disgusting sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you were puffed up and have rather not mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So Paul starts off revealing a specific sin that's happening there among these believers in Corinth. He says, there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality that is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Paul is uh, speaking about a specific sin that a specific individual there in the church is doing. There's a man in that church who is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, because it doesn't say his mother, some have concluded that this might be his stepmother, but either way, it's disgusting. It's something that uh, is a, obviously a, a bad sin. Now, notice Paul doesn't say he had been doing this, as in past tense, yeah, this man slept with his you know, uh, father's wife you know, in the past or one time. It says he has. This is something that is present. And actually, interestingly, uh, the Greek verb has speaks of something that is continuing to happen. So it's not just that it has happened in the present, but it's, it's an ongoing thing. This isn't just like a, a one-night stand that happened, this you know, mistake that people might throw it out there. No, this is a continual relationship between this man and his father's wife. And Paul wants to show the great severity of this sin by saying that such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. Even the unbelievers realize this goes too far. Even for them, that is taboo. They don't do it. And now imagine who he's writing to, because when we started this book, we realized one of the biggest things that Corinth was struggling with was sexual sin. You know, they had this a goddess Epaphrodite. They had over a thousand, you know, temple prostitutes that would go out and elicit sex. I mean, this was a very sexually immoral place. And yet they say that goes too far. I mean, that place of all places is saying this is too much to do. But yet here in that church, there's a person engaging in this and the church isn't doing anything about it. Now, the focus of this chapter is not on sexual immorality. Paul just uses this example to show something more important. Why aren't you guys doing anything? Why aren't you guys as a church dealing with this horrible sin that is in your midst? And that's why he says in verse 2, And you're puffed up, and you've not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Here's the big problem. They see this man. They recognize what's going on. It's apparent what's happening. And Paul tells us they're just puffed up or prideful about it. They haven't mourned that this was happening. They haven't done anything to correct this sin. Now, this is something that clearly the scriptures say is a sin, is unbiblical, is not acceptable. Deuteronomy 22.30 says, A man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's bed. And, and as, you know, you don't even need that scripture in the sense, you know, Paul's already saying even the unbelievers without scripture recognize this is something that shouldn't happen. 
But the scary thing is this horrible sin didn't seem to bother the Corinthian believers. Paul says, you're prideful, you're puffed up, and you haven't mourned the reality that this is happening in your midst. The Greek word translated mourn means to lament, to express sadness and grief, to weep. Why isn't this causing you to weep, to be saddened? Why why isn't this reality that is happening in our fellowship causing us to grieve and want to see it change? And because it didn't cause them to grieve, because they weren't lamenting, because they weren't mourning, they decided not to do anything about this man's horrible sin. They just accepted it and allowed him to continue to fellowship with him. They didn't try to correct it. They didn't try to discipline it. They didn't try to change it. Now, the fact that there was this horrible sin happening in the church shouldn't be what surprises us. The church is full of sinful people, and serious sins happen all the time within the body of Christ. The fact that this is going on shouldn't be like, oh my goodness. What the sad thing is, is the fact that it's going on, and the church full of hopefully some mature believers are not coming and addressing this issue. No one's saying anything. No one's dealing with it. They're just allowing it to continue. That's the real problem. Now, before we look at what Paul says next, which is how you should be dealing with it, you know, ignoring it is not the solution. Let me give you the solution to how to deal with sin among believers in your fellowship. I want to address something that Paul will slightly note at the end of this chapter, but um, he's speaking to the sin of believers, not the sin of unbelievers. And there's a difference in how we deal with that. And I just want to address that because as we go through this, I don't want you thinking in your mind, okay, that's how I go and deal with the sin of my unbelieving coworker, or that's how I go and deal with the sin of my unbelieving friend or the unbeliever in my family. There is a difference between how we deal with the sin of unbelievers and how we deal with the sin of believers. And we need to distinguish those things because it's important that we do. When an unbeliever comes to our church, or when an unbeliever is involved in your life somehow, whether it's a, a family member or a coworker or a friend or even someone you just met, the way we should respond to them is to deal with their sin as a whole. Not trying to point out, well, you have this specific sin that's a problem that you need to change, and you have this specific sin that's also a problem that needs to change. And the way that we deal with their sin as a whole is by sharing the gospel with them to tell them what Jesus has done to pay for all of their sin on the cross. And not only that Jesus has paid for their sin on the cross, but when they accept him, he gives them the power of the Holy Spirit to actually overcome their sin. With unbelievers, we're not disciplining and correcting individual sins in their life. We let them come as they are, and we share with them the gospel because we understand something very important. They can't change without Jesus. They need Jesus. That's the real solution to their problem. We start pointing out, oh, you got this issue and you've changed that. Well, who cares? They're still going to hell. Well, you got this issue and change that. No, ultimately your issue is a sin issue as a whole. And you first need to deal with that. And you deal with that by accepting Christ. And once you accept Christ, then we'll try to help you with these particular issues that you're struggling with. But the first and foremost, we need to bring them to Jesus. Unfortunately, there are churches today that will tell an unbeliever who's a drug addict, an unbeliever who's an alcoholic or a prostitute or an adulterer. You know what? If you want to come to our church, you need to clean yourself up. If you want to come to our church, you need to stop doing drugs. You want to come to our church, you need to stop drinking. You want to come to our church, you need to stop sleeping around with people. And once you stop doing that, then you can come to our church. Then we will welcome you in. Now, the main problem with that is you're telling them to do something they ultimately can't do without Christ. Basically, you're saying, we have the only cure for your sin problem, which is Jesus. But we're not going to allow you to come into our church. We're not going to allow you to come in here about the cure until you go fix yourself. It'd be like going to a doctor who tells you, you know what, you have a terminal disease and there's only one cure. And we keep that cure here in the hospital. But... (laughs) We're not letting you in. Look at you. I mean, look at how many issues you have. Look what this disease has done to you. There's no way you're coming into the hospital. You go fix yourself and you get all better and then you can come in the hospital and we'll give you the cure. Well, we would respond to that with, how am I going to deal with my disease if there's only one cure and you have it and you're not willing to let me have it? I mean, the reality is it's so silly that we tell people, don't come into our church until you fix yourself when we should recognize they can't, just like we couldn't. The only way to be fixed is to come into a relationship with Jesus. And so we want to welcome them and we want to share the gospel with them, not to point out every particular sin they have in their life, but to share with them, hey, you need Jesus. And once you accept him, then we'll start to deal with 
these other things. So when it comes to believers, we're not to treat their sin the same, or when it comes to unbelievers, we're not to treat their sin the same as believers. Now, once someone accepts Christ, once they believe in Him, once they you know hear the gospel, receive it, now all of a sudden the relationships change. They're, they're now part of the fellowship. They're now part of the body of Christ. And for the most part, they're very ignorant to a lot of what the Bible says is sin or isn't sin. And that's a time for us to change the relationship now of just ignoring it and perhaps and just saying, well, we're just going to share the gospel. Well, now you've accepted the gospel. So now we want to address these sins. Now we want to share with you, this is what the Bible says. This is what is wrong. And it needs to change. You know, your lifestyle needs to change now that you have followed Jesus. But what we should never do is just ignore the sin. Because that's not helpful to the person in sin, nor is it helpful to the rest of the fellowship who has that person sinning among them. Now, sadly, the Corinthian response to the sin in their fellowship is something very common in the world today. You know what? I know this person has this horrible sin. I know they're unrepentant. I know they're just continuing in it. But eh, let's just ignore it. Let's just kind of avoid it. Let's just hope it goes away. You know, that's a very common response within the body of Christ today. Let's not do anything to correct the sinful behavior. You know, something I'm sure that you have discovered in your own life personally is doing nothing with sin means it only gets worse. When you don't address your own sin in your own personal life, you know, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. You got to address it. You got to deal with it or things get worse. Well, guess what? Corporately, it's the same thing. When you're with other people who aren't addressing their sin, it just gets worse and it just has more and more of an impact to those around them. You know, there are two words that the world loves to use and it's being adopted by the church a lot today. Those two words are tolerance and acceptance. And these two words are used the most when someone is in sin. When someone's in an adulterous affair, when someone is, you know, addicted to drugs or alcohol or someone is a gossip or, or whatever sin they're in, people in the church love to say, we just need to tolerate their sin. We just need to accept their sin. You know, when a church fellowship tolerates and accepts the continual sinful behavior of a member in their church, all they're doing is ignoring the problem and it's just getting worse. Tolerance and acceptance does nothing to help the believer in sin, and it does nothing to help the fellowship who's now dealing with the consequences of that sin among them. I believe two words that the church should be using instead of tolerance and acceptance is truth and repentance. You see, the truth of God's word is that he reveals to us you know, what sinful behavior actually is. It's God's word that reveals what is right, what it's wrong. It's God's standard that we should be using, not our own. It's God's standard that must be followed, not our own. Sadly, many churches have abandoned the truth of God's word and kind of come up with their own standard, which is usually a very lax standard of what is sin and what isn't. And they just kind of let lots of things slide, let lots of things go that God says, no, those are wrong and those need to be dealt with. So instead of being focused on tolerance, we should be focused on truth. And instead of being focused on acceptance, we should be focused on repentance. You see, repentance is the answer to the sin problem. Think about this. Jesus died for the sins of the world, but yet the only ones who are truly forgiven are the ones who repent, are the ones who give their life to him, are the ones who recognize I am a sinner and I accept you, Jesus, and I repent of my sin. For those who reject him, for those who don't repent, they're not forgiven. They don't have salvation. They don't receive that. Repentance is at the core of what we believe. And so often in the church, we ignore that. We ignore this vital truth of we need to come to repentance, which is different than I feel bad or I'm sorry because I got caught. No, repentance is to turn away from these things that have happened. And that should be one of the ultimate goals that we want to see when a person is in sin. You know, if you had a child that wouldn't obey you as you were walking down the street, they wouldn't next hold, uh, stay next to you, they wouldn't hold your hand, and they would just dart out into the middle of the road where all the cars were driving, you would have a choice to make. Would you discipline that child and do whatever it took to make sure they never did that again? Or would you just say, you know what, I just need to tolerate them. I just need to accept their disobedience and let them do what they want. Hopefully, you would say, no, I got to discipline this child. I got to make sure they don't do that. Why? Because I love them and I don't want them to get hit by a car. I don't want them to die. 
And so I'm going to do something that protect them from their foolishness, from their sinful behavior. You discipline them because you love them and want what's best for them. And the same should be true of church discipline. You correct, you come to a person in sin. Why? Because you love them and you recognize this is hurting your life. And I love you enough to just bring this to your attention. I want to help you overcome this. I find interesting that many of the Christians who like to use this word tolerance and acceptance think they're so loving because of it. But you know what? It's not loving to ignore sin. It's not loving to say, oh, we're just tolerant and acceptant and we're not going to help you and we're not going to do anything. We're not going to address it. That's not loving. We're just going to leave you in your sin. We're just going to let you continue with it and the consequences that come. The goal of dealing with sin should always be repentance and restoration. We want to see them repent to turn away from their sin. But not just that. We want to see them restored. Restored in a fellowship with the church. Restored in a fellowship with God. And those two things should be at the heart of why we're doing it. That should be the goal. The goal isn't, I want to see them suffer. I want to see them get what they deserve. Oh man, they've done this sin and they deserve this and that. No, the goal should be, I want to see them repent. I want to see them be restored. I want to see them get back into proper fellowship with God and with us because we love them. So the Corinthian believers were not disciplining the sin in their fellowship. Instead, they were accepting it. They weren't grieved. They weren't saddened. They just kind of ignored it and continued on without doing anything. And their response was wrong. And so Paul's now going to share with them how they should respond. Verse 3 through 5. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul tells these Corinthian believers, here's what you need to do with this man who's sleeping with his father's wife, who's been doing it for a long time, that you guys have been neglecting it, that this sin has been spreading and has been causing problems. You need to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, you might think this sounds kind of harsh, But something I want you to recognize is this is the final step, the final stage that Paul is speaking about here. There are other steps that we're going to look at this morning, but Paul is talking about, you know, this is the final thing you need to do for an unrepentant person who is continuing in this habitual sin that they won't change. And because the Corinthian believers haven't dealt with this for so long, Paul now says, you know what, I have to jump to the final step because this has become such a big deal and is causing so many problems that you need to take this final step and do this to this man. I think something important to understand is that ignoring sin is never the solution. That's what they were doing and now they're recognizing the problems that it brings. Now before we discuss this final step, I want us to look at the steps prior to it that Jesus reveals when someone's in sin, especially when someone has sinned against you, there is a process that we should take. There are steps that we should take towards bringing repentance and reconciliation and restoration. And so I want us to note those things, and then we're going to come back to this final step here that Paul addresses and Jesus also addresses. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus is giving us the steps to take when someone sins against us. He says this, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector." So here in these verses, Jesus gives four important steps to take. When someone has sinned against you, well, what do you do? How do you respond to that individual? What's the proper way to deal with it? We've already noted ignoring it is not the proper way. But before we look at these steps, let me just clarify something that we're speaking about sin according to what the Bible says is sin. 
So if you can't open the Bible and say, here it clearly says this is a sin, you got no business coming to that person and telling them, oh, you know, there's this horrible sin in your life. Well, really, if I can't see it scripturally, then I, I shouldn't be proclaiming it to you. This isn't about personal pet peeves. This isn't about your own thoughts as to what sin is. This is about what the Bible clearly says is sin. Now, I say that because as a pastor, I've had many experiences where people with their own pet peeves, their own ideas of sin, started rebuking others, but there was no biblical basis for it. When I was in Scotland, we had a woman who believed that women shouldn't wear jeans. Not even shouldn't wear jeans. Not It wasn't even pants. Or you can wear pants, but jeans are of the devil. Jeans you can't wear. If you wear jeans, it's sinful. And the way I knew this is because she was going around to women in the fellowship who were wearing jeans, rebuking them, saying, you're in sin. How dare you wear jeans? You know, this is totally ungodly. So I had to pull this woman aside and say, you know, where are you getting this from in the Bible? Where is this concept coming from that women are in sin for wearing jeans? And she ultimately had to admit, well, I have no real biblical basis. I just have this conviction that, you know, this is wrong and I need to tell these people that. And I had to share with her, hey, you cannot rebuke someone and claim that they're sinning unless you have a clear uh, guideline from Scripture that says this is a sin. That's not there. So stop it. Uh, but we have that too often where we have our own pet peeves, where we have our own standards that we have personally you know, put into our own life and we want to bring them to everybody else. Well, unless it's clear in Scripture, this is not what this is talking about. Jesus isn't talking about that. He's saying, hey, if there's a clear sin that the Bible obviously talks about that someone's engaged in, these are the steps to take in order to address it. And so I just want to make that clear so you realize we need to have that. And I think it's important as well because when you can come to someone and say, look, God says it. This isn't my opinion. I'm not coming to you because I think you're a horrible person or whatever. No, God says this is sinful. Here it says clearly in his word. And so don't do it because I'm telling you. Do it because God's saying it. Do it because he says this is sinful and wrong and you should turn from it. Well, the first step that Jesus gives for dealing with the person who sins against you is for you to go to that person alone and tell them their sin in private. I emphasize these two words, alone and in private. The first thing you should do when addressing the sin of someone who has sinned against you, go to them alone. And as you go to them alone, you can share with them the sin that they've done. Don't bring anyone else with you and also talk with them in private, just between you and them. No one else is being brought in at this point. And when you go to them alone and in private and you share the sin that they've done and, you know, they hear it, if they respond with repentance, if they respond with accepting that they've done this and wanting to change, we're told, oh, great, you've won your brother. You've won your sister. That's the goal. The goal is repentance. And guess what? Now it's your turn to respond with forgiveness. They've repented. You need to forgive so that restoration can happen because restoration isn't going to happen if they repent and you don't forgive. Well, you, you should repent, you jerk. I can't believe you did that. And I'm not forgiving. You don't deserve my forgiveness. Well, then there's no restoration. When they're willing to repent, we need to then be willing to offer forgiveness and let the restoration process happen. And when that takes place, that's the end of it. It's done. You don't need to tell anybody else. You don't need to bring anybody else into it. You went to them alone and in private, and the ultimate goal has been reached. Move on. That's it. That's the first step. And when it happens in the first step, it's wonderful. But you know what? I have found that this step is oftentimes very neglected. Instead of going to the person alone and in private, they don't go to the person at all. They go to other people in the fellowship. Do you, let me tell you what so-and-so did to me or what so-and-so said to me, or they even try to get spiritual in it. Hey, can we pray for so-and-so? Because they did this to me and they did this horrible thing and we need to pray for them because they're such sinners. Um, you know, we need to go to them, not to other people, to them alone and in private. And you know what? When you don't go to them alone and in private and you start talking to other people and you're basically just gossiping about what has happened, now you're in sin. They've sinned against you and you've now sinned against them in the response of not biblically addressing this by going to them alone and in private and sharing these things with them. And it shows that you don't have the right goal because the right goal is I want to see repentance and restoration in our relationship instead of I just want to spread it around and let other people know how bad they are and I want to see them suffer and I want to see this and that. That's, that's the wrong goal and it shows a wrong heart on us. Now, if you go the right way, you go alone, you go in private, you share with them, but they don't repent. 
They don't respond the way that you desire them to. They just say, forget you. I don't care. I'm going to continue to do this. I don't have any repentance toward this. Well, now there's a second step that Jesus says you need to take. The second step is to take one or two people with you and approach that person in sin. Notice Jesus doesn't say take 10 or 20 people with you. He says take one or two. And here's a suggestion that I would give is even taking people that they respect, people that they know, people that they will hopefully listen to perhaps maybe more than yourself, but it's just one or two. The goal is that others would be there to testify. Others would be there to say, you know what? Yeah, this is true. You're in sin and you need to change. And hopefully now it's not just one person saying it, it's two or three people saying it and they'll recognize, yeah, I got a problem and I need to change. And thank you all for bringing that to me. And if they repent, once again, now you need to forgive, allow the restoration to transpire, and it ends there. You don't need to tell anyone else. Those three people that have come are the only three people that need to be involved in this. You don't need to spread it around. You don't need to bring anybody else into it. The goal has been reached. The person has repented. Forgiveness has been offered. Restoration has transpired. And now we can move on. Now, if you go to the person, they don't repent. You bring one or two people, they still don't repent. Well, now you have the third step that you need to take. The third step is to go and tell the church leaders about this person's sin. You know, when it says go tell the church, well, I guess especially depending on the church government is, it's helpful to take it to the church leaders, take it to a pastor, take it to an elder. What you shouldn't do, and I've seen this happen, is go in front of the church and say, all right, everybody, so-and-so is in this sin, they're doing this thing, and we all need to discipline them. That is not the ultimate goal here. That is not what we should be doing. Take it to the church leaders, and notice the pattern that we're seeing. First, just one person, go alone in private. Next, just two or three, and then the church. But notice that the goal is for the least amount of people to be involved, not the most amount of people to be involved. It's to ultimately bring repentance without letting everybody in the church know what's going on. Now, if the leadership of pastors and elders, they come and they address this person, they talk with them about their sin, and that person is still defiant, that person is still saying, well, I'm not going to change, I'm going to continue in this sin, I want nothing to do with your leadership and what you're saying, I don't care what you guys say, I'm going to continue with this. Now there's the fourth step, which is a step that we started with that Paul was addressing, and the fourth step is that the church leaders will ask the person to leave the church. Paul says it in a bit different way. He says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, this seems like an extreme step, but it's an extreme step because this person is in extreme danger, an extreme problem because one person has come to them. They've rejected it. Three people have come to them. They've rejected it. The church leaders have come to them. They've rejected it. And they're still defiantly willing to go in unrepentant, habitual sin, and they don't care. That's dangerous for them, and it's very dangerous for the church as a whole. And so at that point in time, not only are you doing something to help them change, but you're also doing something as a shepherd for the sheep to say, you know what, we got to protect the rest of these sheep from this person who won't change, who's not willing to, and so we're going to ask them to leave the church. Now, this is something that does not happen uh, very often. Um, you know, I've been a pastor for 16 years. There's only been two instances in that time where I've had to ask two different individuals to leave the church. And it was very obvious to everyone of this reality because these people were just blatantly sinning and very clear that they weren't going to stop. And both of them did it in services where they're physically, one was physically violent, the other was just verbally cussing and shouting and, you know, saying different things to different people. And when we addressed them, uh, well, I don't care. I don't abide by your authority. I'll do what I want. When I get back to church, I'll continue with that. Well, that behavior is not acceptable. Uh, but, you know, everybody in the church realized, okay, this person needs to go. You know, they're obviously, you know, not here for the right purpose and this is not good for anyone. Um, you know, but, it's not something that that is that common. Usually you see through this whole process that the Lord works in a heart, especially if this person is a believer, has the Holy Spirit in them, and they usually are willing to change before that. But if it does get to this point, then this is the step that needs to be taken. So if you have a person who's not willing to repent after the first three steps, we have this final step. This is the step that Paul is sharing with, 
And the, he says, let them be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Now, delivering someone over to Satan ultimately has this idea of, you know what? They're going to now be removed from the umbrella of the church, from the ultimate spiritual protection and covering that they have here, and we're going to let them just go and suffer the consequences of their sin. You know what? If they want to continue to indulge in this, they don't want to repent of this, then just let them go for it and let them realize the devastation that's going to come because of this. The goal notably is that their sinful flesh would be destroyed, that they would recognize their sin and hopefully come to a place of repentance. You know, many times people aren't willing to give up sin because they like it too much. They've been deceived by the enemy that, oh, this is good for me. I want this. This is good for my life. I want to continue in this. And so they do. And so there sometimes needs to be, especially for stubborn people, to come to a place where they recognize, no, this is not good for me. You know, it's kind of like that prayer that we pray sometimes of, of Lord, help them to hit rock bottom. Well, what are we praying? We're praying, Lord, help them to finally just get the worst that they can of the consequences of this sin so they see how bad it is and that they'll change. It's not, Lord, let them hit rock bottom so they can suffer. It's, Lord, if that's what it takes for their eyes to be open, if that's what it takes for them to finally repent, then let it happen. Don't protect them from it. Just let them suffer the consequences of their sin so they'll get to that place where they see, I can't keep going down this road. And this is ultimately what you're doing. When you're, when you're removing someone from the church, it's that final step which is saying, all right, you're going to continue in this and you're going to start to see the big consequences that are coming to your life, which the goal of hopefully this person now recognizes that and repents. Now, let me say this. If the person repents that you've kicked out of your church, you need to bring them back into fellowship because the goal is repentance and restoration. That's what you want. That's the desire. It's not like you're out and you're never coming back. You know what? You're out until you deal with this sin. You're out until you repent of this. But if you choose to repent, if going out causes you to see the error of your way and you come back to us and say, I'm so sorry, forgive me. As a body of believers, we are to forgive and then to restore the relationship and to bring them back in. Now, it's interesting, in 2 Corinthians, we see that these believers take up Paul's advice here, and they kick this guy out of the church. But the problem is, this guy repents. He's so miserable from what has happened that he finally repents. But you know what? The Corinthian believers won't let him back in. They won't receive him back. And so Paul has to write to them now, hey, yeah, you listened to me, and you kicked him out, but he's repented. So now you got to bring him back in. And the challenge was, okay, you guys are missing the point. It's not just to make him suffer, it's to get him to a repentance. And he's got your repentance. Now you need to restore the relationship. Now you need to receive him back into the fellowship. I think an important thing to note is all discipline in the church is to be carried out with an attitude of restoration, not condemnation. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 says, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You know, even if you have to remove someone from the church, Paul's saying here, you know what? Make sure you understand they're still a brother or sister in Christ. Don't view them now as some enemy. No, no, they're just a believer who has made a choice to continue in sin when they shouldn't, but that shouldn't change the way that we see them in our relationship because they're still our brother. They're still our sister, just like we have family who goes wayward. And it's not like, well, I don't want nothing to do with you now. Well, there are families still. Hopefully we still love them and hopefully we're still there to receive them back if they're willingly repenting. Warren Wearsby, a great pastor and teacher, said this, Church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it's a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. You know, I love what Warren Wiersbe says here, but I find it so sad that the first statement is too often true in the church. Too many people as these pious policemen seeking a criminal within the body of Christ. Oh man, we just can't wait to find someone and to rebuke them and to do these things. And they have missed the point instead of the heart of a broken hearted brother or sister wanting to restore a member of the family who has gone away, gone astray, got involved in something and continues in it. That should be our heart. We should be broken by it. We should love this person enough to say, we want to share this with you, but man, 
our desire is repentance. And right when you do that, we're ready to receive you back. We're ready to show you restoration, forgiveness, and love because that's the goal. So the first reason you should take these four steps is for the person. The person in sin. Do it for them because they need it. If they're not willing to deal with the sin themselves, then as the body of Christ, we come and help them. Because ultimately, they need it. They need to be restored. They need to be shown this so ultimately they can repent. But the second reason you take these four steps is for this fellowship as a whole. You do it for the person in sin, but you also do it for the fellowship. And that's what Paul addresses next, verses 6-8. through Your glorifying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, you know what? Your glorying isn't good. The fact that you're not bothered by this person and this horrible sin in your fellowship, that's not something that you should glory in. That's a bad thing. It's not a good thing. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul's using an analogy here of leaven and bread. And in making certain breads, you would use a little bit of leaven. It had a bit of yeast and a bit of the previous batch of dough. And, and what leaven would ultimately do is you would spread, it would spread through that entire batch of dough and then it would cause it to rise and to puff up. Now, leaven in the Bible almost always refers to sin. So what Paul is saying here is, don't you know that one person in sin can affect the whole fellowship? All it takes is one person who's in this habitual lifestyle of sin, unwilling to change. Don't you realize that can impact and affect and spread through the entire fellowship? We might say today, one rotten apple spoils the whole bunch. The same concept only takes one to really ruin everything else. This man and his sin is affecting all of you. So he says, you need to purge out the old leaven that you might be a new lump. Remove him so that you can protect the rest of the body because he's not willing and that sin is impacting everybody. You know, oftentimes when we're in sin, we think I'm only hurting myself. It's just me that I'm impacting. No one else is getting hurt. But that's never the case. And within a body of believers, especially a body of believers that are close with one another and interact with each other regularly, you never just impact yourself with your sin. Your sin will have an impact on others. Those closest to you will be impacted the most. Paul ends this chapter revealing there's a difference between how you respond to believers and unbelievers. Notice what he says, verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So Paul ends here making this distinction, as I shared a little earlier, between how to deal with unbelievers versus how you deal with believers in sin. And basically what he's saying is, you know, when I told you not to keep company with these unrepentant people who are, and he gives this list, I wasn't talking about unsaved people. I was talking about saved people, because if you stay away from those people, then you got to go to another world. You know, we're surrounded by people who are unbelievers who are engaged in these things. And as a church, it's not to, well, we're just going to, you know, get ourselves in this little group and stay away from all of them. Paul said, no, that's not the goal. Remember, how do we deal with the sin of unbelievers? We want to reach them with the gospel. We want to pursue them. We want to share the truth that will bring them in to fellowship with Jesus. But he's saying, what I was talking about was a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ. When they're engaged in this type of behavior There are ways in which you need to address that. And one of those was, you know what? If they're unrepentant and won't change, then don't even eat with such a person. Don't have that intimate fellowship. In that culture, it was a very intimate thing of of having that fellowship, of eating together. And he said, you know what? If someone is continuing in this habitual lifestyle sin in the fellowship, 
Don't allow them to come have that. Don't, don't partake in that with them because they need to as part of that kind of, all right, this is the, the, the discipline that we're giving here because this is something that's so sweet and something that's so important and something that's so good. We're going to remove that until you recognize, you know what? You need to change. You need to repent. But notice what Paul says at the end. It's not our job to judge those who are outside of the church. Speaking of non-Christians, that's God's job. He's going to judge them. We know what's going to happen on the great white throne judgment. That's his job to judge them. That's not our job. But then he turns around and he says, but do we not judge those who are inside the church? The answer is yes. We are to judge one another. We're not to judge those who are unbelievers, but we are to judge believers in the sense of helping each other grow, being there for each other to point out different issues so that we might repent of them and grow through them. The reality is, as believers, we should love each other enough to say, you know what, I'm going to come to a brother or sister who's in this continual habitual sin that they obviously are not given up, and I want to address it, and I want to help them repent and hopefully move on. But Paul says, because of that reality, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Since we do judge those within the body, judge this guy. Deal with his sin. And now it's gotten to a point where you need to deal with it in the fourth stage. You need to have him leave. And fortunately, it worked. Having him leave brought him to a place of repentance and ultimately brought him back into fellowship. But you know what? Discipline is never fun. It's never easy for most of us. As parents often say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. You know, when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, this is definitely hurting me more than it hurts you. And then, you know, I became a parent and I started to realize you know, what my parents were actually saying when I was a kid, I didn't get it. But there's truth to that reality. It's not fun to discipline those you love. But you recognize, I got to do it for you. I'm doing it for your sake because I love you enough not to let you continue down this path that is so destructive in your life. The most loving and helpful thing to do for someone who's in that habitual lifestyle sin is to help them see it and to encourage them to repent of it and then forgive them and restore them when they do. We don't just do it for their benefit. We also do it for the benefit of the body as a whole so that that sin doesn't affect everyone else. Church discipline, not a topic that we like, not a topic we talk a lot about, but it's important. It's important to have. It's important to be able to love each other enough to do this well. But I will say this, when you don't do it well, when you sinfully approach others, all you do is make it worse. And that's what I see too often in the body of Christ. Well, yeah, it's my job to judge you and you better wait till I do it. You know, and it's just this very sinful, this very angry, especially someone sinned against you and you're just responding. Basically, you're hurt, you're angry, you're coming after them. And so you're just sinning right back against them. And now you just have more sin. And so you got to follow this process. Ultimately, the goal of repentance, restoration, doing it in love with the right heart because you love them and want to see God work in their life. And we need to use the stages, the steps that Jesus shared with us. First, go to that person alone. Tell them their sin in private. Second, take one or two people with you. And once again, address their sin. Third, tell the church leaders. And then finally, the church leaders will take it upon themselves to ask the person to leave if that needs to happen. And with unbelievers, share the gospel. Don't point out all their sins. Share the gospel. That's what they need. That's what they need to hear. Let's pray. Father, as much as we don't like it, I'm so thankful that your word does tell us that you discipline those you love. It's an act of love. You demonstrate love by telling us, you know what, I I love you too much to let you continue in that in your life. And Lord, we just pray that you would help remove the sins in our life. Lord, help us to see areas where we need to change, areas where we need to get right with you. Lord, that first and foremost, we'd be looking at ourselves before we start looking at everyone else, Lord. But we recognize that you, as our Heavenly Father, are the one that so lovingly and gently and clearly helps us to see our sin and helps us to change from our sin. But Lord, I pray that you would give us your heart for people, especially people who are believers in you, brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would help us to be able to lovingly and gently, but also clearly address sin that's not being dealt with, that's not being repented of. 
Lord, help us as a church not to be like Corinth and just ignore and hope things change, but be willing to do the spiritual thing, which is the hard thing sometimes, and lovingly approach individuals so that you might work, so that you might help us change, so that you might protect the body from the effects of sin, especially serious sin like we looked at this morning. But Lord, we're grateful that you love us so much. We're grateful that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, I am so grateful that you tell us that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, and I pray that we would be forgiving people. Lord, when people sin against us, and especially when they repent of that, that we would have a heart to forgive them, that we would be willing to restore the relationships that are broken because of sin. Lord, that we would follow that pattern and that example that you have established, that you have set for us. And Lord, I just want to pray as we have the privilege, Lord, of going out today. I pray first that the weather would stay. I hope it's not raining, Lord. I pray that you would give us uh, some sunshine. I pray that people would come out to the park. Lord, we want to see people who don't know you come to know you. That we come with a heart that recognizes, yeah, they're sinners. And there's only one cure, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray you would give us boldness. I pray you would direct us to people who you've prepared that are ready to receive and to hear and to talk. Lord, I just pray that you would use us, not only in our words, but in our actions. Lord, that we would just be a light. That people would see the difference, Lord, that they would see our love for each other. They would see our love for them, that they'd be drawn to us, Lord, and that you would use this time for us to reach people who don't know you. And maybe we come across some who do, Lord, who are just backslidden, who are struggling, Lord, that we can come and we can encourage them and help them to get back into a right relationship with you. But we thank you, God. We thank you for the privilege of having a relationship with you. And we ask, Lord, that you would just help us to love each other enough, Lord, to look after each other, to be there for one another, and if need be, to correct so that the body could stay strong spiritually. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for a time just to gather together and be encouraged. And we pray that you would just speak to us and help us grow. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We close in a song of worship. And as the team's coming up, just remind you of a couple things. Men, this Tuesday is our next meeting, uh, 7.30 at my house. So if you can make that, we'd love to have you. Uh, for those of you interested in going to Kenya, uh, or maybe you're not even sure yet, but you're just like, hey, I, I'm interested in missions, I'm interested in a trip, uh, next Sunday uh, we're going to have a meeting uh, just to share more about that and just see if you uh, want to connect with that trip. Uh, Jaime's going to be leading that. It'll be after the service next Sunday. So if you want to do that, I encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, and as I prayed, uh, we're going to have our outreach uh, right after the service. So we'd love for you to join us uh, and just go and share with people. So let's just praise the Lord one more time. Why don't we go ahead and